she said, I did something today and did it for Bobby. And then her next statement was, if anything ever happened to me, Bobby did it. You know, I didn't run in their circles. I didn't have that kind of money. And I knew he was a very wealthy man. And he could do whatever he wanted to somebody. And I was very scared. She once told me that she called Albert Einstein Medical Center for him and, and said she was Kathy. Given your position and what you do, is this the kind of thing that is in any way helpful to your career? On the contrary, it is not good for a movie producer to be associated with a murder trial. I had a very strong feeling that the next thing she was about to tell me, and it seemed strongly inclined, was that Bobby had a hand in Kathy's disappearance. Arthur Genove's primal therapy, it was a very popular thing. Then John Lennon and Yoko went into it, and then it became, you know, the celebrity thing to do. And you do that by yelling, mommy, mommy, mommy. And, and the truth of the matter is that, is that lying there on the floor or sitting there on the couch and shouting, it does sort of relax you a little bit. But in terms of being a therapy, that's ridiculous. Welcome back to season two of Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. In this episode, we examine recent trial witness testimony that closes a chapter in the prosecution's case against Robert Durst regarding what has become known as the phone call. And we continue our series, Robert Durst in His Own Words. Today, we explore Durst's dysfunctional relationship with his family and its company, the Durst Organization. We will also be joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder, and by reporter Charlie Bagley, who is covering the trial for The New York Times and CrimeStory.com. That's all coming up after the break. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Robert Durst is on trial in Los Angeles for the murder of Susan Berman. However, the prosecution asserts that this case is inextricably linked to Durst's alleged murder of his wife, Kathy Durst, in 1982. They intend to demonstrate that Berman helped Durst cover up Kathy's murder, and that years later, when she was on the brink of poverty, attempted to manipulate him for money by insinuating that she was about to talk to investigators who were reopening the case in New York. 
Earlier this season, we heard witness testimony from Robert Durst's trial for the murder of Susan Berman regarding what has become known as the phone call. Dr. Cooperman is yet another witness who you're going to hear from. He's going to explain to you that on Monday morning, there's evidence that he received a call between 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. from someone who identified themselves as Kathy saying that she had diarrhea and would not be making it to school that day. Now, telephone records from the Durst 37 Riverside Drive penthouse for that Monday do not show any such call. In his original opening statement back in 2020, Deputy DA John Lewin explained that this phone call to Dr. Albert Cooperman is a key detail in the case. Cooperman was the Dean of Education at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine at the time of Kathy Durst's disappearance. In that earlier episode, we also recapped the appearances of former medical school classmates of Kathy Durst, whose testimony helped the prosecution poke holes in the idea that Kathy or any actual medical student could have made the call. The prosecution followed that by offering witness testimony indicating that it was Susan Berman who made that call to Dr. Cooperman. Now, if Kathy didn't make the phone call to Dean Cooperman, who did? Well, we know who did. Because shortly after the call to Dean Cooperman was made, and multiple times over the years, Susan admitted to making that call or providing an alibi. She called Dean Cooperman pretending to be Kathy. Today, we examine the testimony of witnesses who claim that Susan Berman herself acknowledged making the alibi call to Dr. Cooperman. What was Susan's um, personality like? She was vivacious and exuberant when she, you know, was in her better moods. (laughs) And uh, she was uh, very outgoing. That's Miriam Barnes being questioned by Deputy DA Habib Balian in a pre-recorded video. Miriam and Susan lived in the same apartment complex on Beekman Place in New York City in the 1970s. Where did you meet her? Do you remember? Yes, in the laundry room. I was doing my laundry. She came in to do her laundry. I was rather quiet and shy, and she, hi, you know, I'm Susan, and I just moved here from Bolivar, you know, and, and we just became fast friends. Eventually, the two women became close friends. Susan attended Miriam's wedding and brought her food when she was sick. Well, once I was, I, I was home from work with the flu, and she came knocking on my door, and she went to the, not that she cooked it, she went to the local deli and bought me a roast chicken and jello, which was very strange to me, but that's what she did. Barnes testified to one conversation in particular that's relevant to this case. I had just come home from work and she called me and asked me to please come up to her apartment right away. Was there anything out of the ordinary about the way she summoned you up to her apartment? There was a sense of urgency. Did you go up right away? Yeah. And when you got up, was Susan acting at all out of the ordinary? Yeah. We were in the, the, the vestibule, the hallway of our apartment. You know, so we didn't go into the living room, we didn't go into the kitchen, we were just in the, this long hallway. And she was pacing back and forth. She asked me to sit down, there were two chairs, like, you know, not living room 
comfy chairs, just two chairs facing each other in, 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 the, in, in the hallway. She asked me to sit down. She said, I'm going to tell you something, but I, I, I need you not to ask me any questions. It took her a while to get it out. She was very nervous. And when Susan got nervous, she would pick at her lip. She said, I did something today and did it for Bobby. And then her next statement was, if anything ever happened to me, Bobby did it. It wasn't until years later, after Susan was murdered, that Miriam Barnes understood the significance of this conversation. When was it that you realized the significance of this conversation you had had with Susan Murphy? The day I was sitting in the chapel at the, at, at the cemetery at Susan's funeral. And what went through your mind? You know, people were jabbering about some new boyfriend that she had that couldn't, and I'm going, what the thing? And then I was just going through my head, you know, all these things, and I remembered the conversation. And I was, I, and I kept remembering it as I drove back, you know, it was in my car driving back, back home. Did you understand the significance at that moment when you're in your car driving home of the information that you had? I did, but I, I still needed time to think about it. It was just so frightening to me. The whole, the whole situation of, of Susan being murdered and, and then me realizing what had, and remembering what had been said to me. Did you, in your mind, come to believe who was responsible for Susan's murder? In my mind? Yeah. Yeah. Who was that? Bobby Although Barnes stated that she has a clear memory of this incident, this was how she described the timing of when it occurred. What year did this conversation occur, as you recall? 70s, um, I don't know. It has to be in the 70s because it was before I was getting married and it was before I got married. Well, what year did you <laughs> I've been divorced longer than I've been married, <laughs> so it's hard to... Well, I got you. married, I think, in, in, 70, in 75, 76. Let me ask you this. Are you more certain of exactly when this conversation took place or are you more certain about what was said? I'm more certain of what was said. Okay. And let me ask you this. Um, how certain are you that whenever this conversation happened, was it the same period of time that um, Kathleen Durst had done this? Yes, because then it was in the newspaper a little while later. That time period that you read and heard about it, was that uh, generally the same time period that this conversation took place? Like the same year? Yes, of course. Okay within the same weeks? Yeah. Okay. Naturally, on cross-examination, defense attorney Chip Lewis drilled down on this point since Kathy disappeared several years after Miriam's wedding. I want to clarify one thing. Um, you were married, you married Gerald in 1978? Yeah. Even after she understood the significance of this statement, Barnes waited a number of years before going public. Did you at that point in time after Susan Miller's funeral, go to the police and say, I have this information you need to know. No. Why not? Because I was scared of him. What in particular were you afraid of? You know, I didn't run in their circles. I didn't have that kind of money, and I knew he was a very wealthy man, and he could do whatever he wanted to somebody, and I was very scared. 
you know, you, I started thinking about his wife and then Susan, and I'm going, oh my God, I don't want to have anything to do with this. And he was petrified. I still am. The jury also watched video testimony of Linda Obst, a film and television producer with credits including Sleepless in Seattle and Interstellar. In the early years of Susan's career as a screenwriter, Linda and Susan collaborated on a screenplay based on Susan's memoir. And in the course of their collaboration, Linda got to know Susan very well. Deputy DA John Lewin questioned Linda Obst. In terms of the relationship that she had with Bobby Durst, how would you characterize it? I thought Susan was in love with him. She called him her best friend, but she talked about him so much and to the exclusion of any other guy that I thought that she, I told her I thought she was in love with him and that she seemed to associate him with her father. As far as you know, was there ever any um, type of relationship between the two of them that was romantic? I think in Susan's mind, but not in reality. At one point in their conversations, Susan mentioned a phone call that she had made. Well, in the context of many, many conversations where we had made the analogy of she was like Gladys to Davy in terms of being needed by him and helping him, she once told me that she called Albert Einstein Medical Center for him and, and said she was Kathy. Did Susan ever speak about Kathy? A bit. And what would Susan say about Kathy? I remember uh, not during the New York period, but once we were in Los Angeles together, she had said that Kathy was a cokehead and disappeared. And is it fair to say that by the time you were working on the screenplay with Susan, you had knowledge of Kathy's disappearance? I don't remember at exactly what moment in our collaboration I was able to sort of figure that out. It was never a subject of our conversations, oddly. Do you recall, you mentioned a moment ago uh, that Susan made a comment about calling Albert Einstein. Right. Can you recall, as best you can, what did she say? It came up in the context of she did the sorts of things for Bobby that Gladys did for Davy. And the example that she gave was that when Bobby was asked her to or needed her to, she made this phone call to Albert Einstein in Kathy's name. We stopped what you say in Kathy's name. Or saying she was Kathy. Echoing Miriam Barnes' testimony, Obst said that she didn't realize the importance of this conversation at the time it happened. Years later, she was struck by a horrifying epiphany. Did you watch the Jeans episode where they talked about the call to Albert Einstein Medical School? Yes. And can you tell me, when you watched that episode, can you tell me what happened? Yes. Um, that was a very disturbing episode to me because that was the point at which I realized that people did not know that she called the Albert Einstein Medical Center. And that I immediately realized upon seeing that episode 
that I knew this fact. I was struck. Um, my heart started racing, and uh, I, I knew that I knew this. I knew that I knew that Susan had told me this, and I knew it with the conviction of my entire being. And it was terrifying to me because I assumed that everyone knew that. Again, echoing Miriam Barnes, Obst testified that she was a reluctant witness. Is this an experience that you ever wanted? Oh, Lord, no. Given your position and what you do, is this the kind of thing that is in any way helpful to your career? On the contrary. It is not good for a movie producer to be associated with a murder trial. Why are you here? For justice. Ricky Ring was another of Susan Berman's friends that the jury heard from last week. Again, John Lewin questioned her in pre-recorded video testimony. We met at UCLA and we were roommates as undergraduates. We remained very close friends in between intervals of not speaking to each other. And if I were to ask you in terms of your friends back then at UCLA, how would you describe your level of closeness to Susan? Uh, very, very close. Ring described a conversation she had with Susan about Kathy's 1982 disappearance. Did you ever discuss with Susan anything about Kathy's disappearance? Yes. What did Susan say to you? She said that she was shocked, surprised, amazed, that the New York Police Department bought the story that a fourth-year medical student, which Kathy was, would run off with her drug dealer and do no thorough investigation. She told me she was also shocked. Bobby threw out all of Kathy's possessions shortly after she disappeared. And she told me that she was very surprised when she went to the Florida Keys with Bobby a few weeks after Kathy had disappeared, Bobby never mentioned Kathy. What was your response when she told you this? I told her that I was a lawyer, and while I couldn't specifically remember what the rules of professional responsibility were at this very moment, I never wanted to hear another word about this. And what prompted you to respond in the way that you just indicated. I had a very strong feeling that the next thing she was about to tell me and that been strongly inclined was that Bobby had a hand in Kathy's disappearance. As you see your case, do you remember when approximately that took place? It was between September of 1985 and spring of 88. You told Susan, you stopped her, you said you didn't want to hear it. Did Susan ever bring that conversation up again? No. When there was a pause in the proceedings, Judge Wyndham instructed the jury with the following. Before we resume the recording, I am going to give you a brief instruction. You heard the witness, Ricky Ring, state the following. I had a very strong feeling 
that the next thing she was about to tell me and had been strongly implying was that Bobby had a hand in Kathy's disappearance. Ladies and gentlemen, that statement was not admitted for the truth of that implication, but for the limited purpose of explaining the witness's state of mind. Thank you, Larry. You're welcome, Mr. Chesnoff. Although Susan did not tell Ring that she placed a call to Albert Einstein's School of Medicine, Ring learned of the alleged phone call around the time of Susan's death. At that point, she too had a disturbing realization. When you were made aware that there was an allegation that Susan Berman had called the dean of the medical school pretending to be Kathy, what was your response? My response was to the content of the call. And what was it you had heard about the alleged content of that call? That the caller had said that she could not be there, be a class, because she had diarrhea. And how was that comment significant to you? Susan and I lived in the dorms and were roommates for several years, both in apartments and in dorms. Susan had a habit of emerging. We had communal bathrooms in UCLA dorms. And announcing often that she had just had A, diarrhea, or B, thrown up, because she had ulcers, she said. And when I heard that that was the nature of the call of all the millions of ailments in the world, that seemed horribly suspicious. Ricky Ring was not the only one of Susan's friends who was struck by the particular ailment that the caller to Dr. Cooperman described. Stephen Silverman, a journalist who was friends with Susan Berman and for a time lived in the same building in New York City, testified to a similar epiphany. Again, he was questioned by John Lewin in pre-recorded testimony. Was there a point in time, Mr. Silverman, where you heard that there had been a call placed to the dean of the medical school where the woman on the phone had discussed the symptoms she was having on uh, this woman having identified herself as Kathy Durson. Have you heard this information before? I have. When you heard that information, what did you think? A bell went off in my head. And at some point, you heard that in this call that the individual discussed um, details about their sickness, is that correct? Correct. Graphic details. And when you heard the report of what had been said on the phone, what is the first thing that went through your mind? This sounds exactly like Susan. Did Susan ever tell you, did she ever say to you, that she had knowledge about Kathy Durst's disappearance? No. Now, given the relationship that you and Susan have, do you believe that that is the kind of thing that Susan would have confided in you about? No. And why is that? Well, number one, I was a journalist. Uh, but number two, uh, as I've said, she was very protective of her friends. Lewin pressed Silverman on why a bell purportedly went off in his head when he heard the news of this phone call. Did Susan have a habit about talking about bodily functions? 
Yes, indeed. She was a bit of a hypochondriac, but one morning she was sick and she didn't have a doctor. I took her to mine and she then proceeded to give a, I don't know if you call it a blow-by-blow -blow account of uh, her impacted bowels. And uh, if Susan had an upset stomach, you heard about it in exact detail. And she did not hold back. Why is the prosecution so intent on proving that Susan made the phone call? Because years later, they allege, when Berman intimated that investigators wanted to discuss Kathy's disappearance with her, Durst was, as Deputy DA John Lewin puts it, forced to, quote, tie up a loose end, end quote. In future episodes, we will examine why these events were on the minds of both Robert Durst and Susan Berman in the months before Susan's death. And later in this episode, I'll be joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder, and by reporter Charlie Bagley to discuss the recent developments from the trial. But now we will continue our deep dive using Robert Durst's own words to explore his past. That's coming up after the break. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Last week, we looked at the childhood experiences and habitual behaviors that form the foundation of Robert Durst as a person. In this episode, we will look at Bob's comments about his adult experiences with his family to get a better understanding of how Bob views the Dursts. All of the following is pulled from the public record, trial testimony, interview transcripts, and even Bob's own writing, lightly edited into a narrative form and read by actor David Kelsey. When Douglas was finally chosen to lead the business, I both felt relieved, but I also felt that, well, if this was known, and I felt that people were talking about behind my back. I don't know if that was paranoia or not, but that is the way I felt. In the back of my mind, I was going to be chosen, and then I was going to quit. But things don't work out like that. Douglas beat me up. I don't mean physically, I mean beat me up. He wanted to take my birthright, wanted to run the company. He wanted to take my money, and he did those things. The complexity surrounding the succession within the Durst organization cannot be understated. We know from his own words that Bob did not want to go into the family business and was often hostile towards those in the family who worked there. We also know that Bob viewed the ability to take over the business as his birthright and wanted to be the one to walk away and reject the conformity demanded of a corporate career. This tension, I want to be asked so that I can decline, seems to underlie the conflict between Douglas and Robert Durst. Douglas wants to be nice and shiny and perfect. He does all this stuff for the government. I mean, Seymour and Douglas were probably two of the most successful real estate developers New York has ever seen. But 
seeing what his feeling was. I don't want nothing to do with the government. I'm going to build buildings as a right. I'm not going to seek variances. I'm not going to get involved with any of these programs where you and the government are doing something. He prided himself on never making political contributions, never putting himself in the position where he was kowtowing, as he would say, to the politicians. And Douglas is going the other way. He prides himself on being able to pull the right strings, push the right buttons. And for that kind of thing, he wants the reputation to have always been perfect. And that's not the way it was. And my father knew that that's not the way it was. And my father was always very out there, acknowledging what was going on. Though Bob was often critical of Seymour, he still appears to have held his father's business acumen in high regard. That feeling may have been mutual, with Seymour taking a 30-something Bob Durst to visit Bernice's gravesite, where he solemnly asked Bob to recommit to the Durst organization so that Seymour's empire would remain in the family's hands. Unsurprisingly, the two eldest Durst sons have differing views of the family dynamics. Bob has said he felt that Douglas usurped him as the heir apparent in their father's eyes, likely via sneaky maneuvering. Douglas, on the other hand, grew up believing that Seymour favored Bob, coaching Bob's basketball team, for example. But upon reflection, Douglas came to see those same actions as signs of Seymour's concern about Bob and an attempt to keep an eye on him. Over time, Bob's relationship with Douglas became especially contentious and his lying became increasingly random. Bob shoplifted and lied to his family about being in the school band, going so far as to bring home a tuba only to stash it as soon as he'd left the house. He gave high school minimum effort, saying he, quote, went and left at the end of the day, end quote. Douglas described the day that he transferred from Scarsdale High to the prestigious Fieldston School as one of the best days of his life because it meant he was getting away from Bob. Eventually, Bob would leave home for college. By all measure, his experience at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania was pretty standard. He worked at the student newspaper as a business manager. He contributed to the yearbook. He joined a couple of frats. Bob described himself as a mediocre student, and it's been suggested by the prosecution in the Berman case that Bob's time in graduate school was really an attempt to avoid the draft. I graduated from Lehigh University, and I went right to UCLA. Lehigh was all men, very, very structured. UCLA was fun, sort of discovered the hippie lifestyle. It wasn't necessary for the university very much in order to stay enrolled in a PhD program. It was the late 60s and very liberal. Lots of demonstrations and lots of time the university was on strike. The professors were more or less on the same side as the students against the administration. So nobody really got bad grades in anything. Bob's journey out west introduced him to his lifelong marijuana habit, as well as a new experimental form of therapy. Arthur Genove's primal therapy. It was a very popular thing. My girlfriend in UCLA at the time had a brother who was one of the therapists in the program. And then John Lennon and Yoko went into it, and then it became, you know, the celebrity thing to do. I got nothing out of it. It all had to do with your mother. And that was stuff happened that when you were young and had to do with your mother. 
And in order to be a truly whole person, you you had to get back in your mind to those years a long time ago. And the way to do that was to tell your mother that you really wanted to tell her back then, but were too little and a child and afraid to do it. And you do that by yelling, mommy, mommy, mommy. And, and the truth of the matter is that is that lying there on the floor or sitting there on the couch and shouting, it does sort of relax you a little bit. But in terms of being a therapy, that's ridiculous. Bob Durst in Scream Therapy. Let that sink in for a moment. Though the image is easy to ridicule, it's incredibly telling to see how Bob looks at an exercise intended to inspire self-healing and reads it in a detached, almost disdainful way. Bob's earlier dealings with mental health professionals were likewise unproductive. A psychiatrist who treated him when he was 10 years old found that, quote, Robert's hostility towards his father and his younger brother was of such intensity that it might constitute a destructive psychodynamic force sufficient to produce a personality decomposition and possibly even schizophrenia, end quote. Any therapy ended soon after. I left UCLA in 1970, and I went to New York to figure out what I wanted to do. Around then, I met Kathy. I began dating her, and we started living together almost immediately. Thanks to the interview detail offered by the Jinx, it is well known how crude and self-centered the ultra-wealthy Robert Durst behaved when he engaged his then-wife Kathy's working-class family. Durst's reflection on his dynamic with the McCormicks, however, suggests a more complex state of affairs. I must have known what I was doing was not proper back then. It was just what I found myself into with this family was very, very close to one another um, for the holidays. I mean, Kathy had four siblings, all of whom had gotten married young and piles of kids. They'd all go to the mother's house and in New Hyde Park. Not a big house, and they would stay over from a Christmas Eve day through the next day, and they give the kids the presents, and I could never handle that. My family was the opposite. We'd get together for two hours, very formal, not talk to one another about hardly nothing. And I mean, I look back on the whole thing, and it could have been very beautiful. Our family was very caring. I was just in this attitude of yuck. Bob Durst knows his in-laws are lovely and kind, but seems to have no understanding from his own family how to engage such warmth. The marriage of Robert and Kathy Durst has been covered exhaustively by a number of outlets, including season one of this podcast. Instead of revisiting that period, we're going to maintain our focus on lesser-known aspects of Bob's life, like his growing addictions and increasing difficulty managing day-to-day life. After my wife Kathy left in February of 1982, my compulsive use of alcohol, drugs, and food changed from an infrequent problem to a daily event. I hated to have more than a brief conversation with someone because I immediately found myself being asked, what do you do? And the true answer was nothing. I live off the family estate. The next question always seemed to be about wife and or children. I don't have any. 
I had always been comfortable telling stories, little white lies. But now I started routinely lying about career and family. I saw several therapists briefly and thought about suicide frequently. I look back on my life and the two things which most adversely affected my life was my mother dying and the way I treated Kathy. I mean, I could have let her have a child. I mean, and I would have survived it all. I, I don't think I would have been a real good father, but I think she would have been a real good mother and I didn't have to be so controlling. I never felt that I was really a good guy. While it's just shy of an admission, this may be the closest Bob will get to expressing guilt over his actions towards Kathy. To assemble Robert Durst's dialogue in this episode, the Crime Story team drew on a range of case files, courtroom testimony, and interviews conducted with Robert Durst. For a complete list of materials used, please visit crimestory.com. In our next installment of Durst in His Own Words, we will explore Robert Durst's longtime fascination with and ownership of guns. Before we close out today's episode, I'd like to review the developments in the trial with my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder, and with reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the Durst trial for The New York Times and CrimeStory.com. Charlie, Brittany, thanks for being here. Thank you. Great to be back. So this week, we reviewed a lot of the evidence that the prosecution has put forward that Susan Berman actually made the call to Dr. Cooperman pretending to be Kathy Durst. Charlie, how compelling do you think that evidence is in its cumulative form? Well, I've always thought that the case the prosecution is putting together is sort of like a brick wall. They're stacking one brick at a time. And, you know, here we have Susan Berman. She was the keeper of secrets, yet she was whispering about whatever happened back in 1982 to one friend or another. I mean, we have Miriam Barnes, who apparently Susan talked to right after she did whatever she did, presumably made the phone call pretending to be Kathy Durst. But she told a lot of friends little nuggets. She never seemed to tell the whole story, but she gave information to a lot of people. And at the same time, her relationship with Bob was so close that many of these same people didn't immediately think of Bob as a suspect when Susan's body was found at at her house in Benedict Canyon. Brittany, we heard from a couple of people who testified that Susan had a habit of talking about her bodily functions, particularly when she got ill, throwing up and having diarrhea. What did you think of that evidence besides the fact that it was gross? I thought it was another layer in what we're learning about Susan's personality. She sounds like a riot to talk to. But, you know, aside from that, as far as it relates to the case, it does seem pretty compelling to me that people knew her to speak about those things. And that was the excuse given on the phone Um, We heard a lot of testimony from a lot of doctors that that said, you know, unless it was very severe diarrhea, you probably wouldn't be using that as an excuse as a medical student. You know, and the thing I just keep coming back to is if she didn't make the call, why would she have told all those people? So, Brittany, what did you make of Bob's story about the primal scream therapy? 
it was so funny to me that he thought it was stupid. My read on him is that he's not a great actor, you know, and he's changed physically throughout the years. But the thing that seems consistent is his cold, dead eyes. And I can only imagine him trying to enthusiastically play along in this scream therapy to impress his girlfriend at the time. And I just keep coming back to those eyes, what that must have looked like. So Charlie, was he actually in primal scream therapy with John Lennon and Yoko Ono? That's what he says. And and I have listened to an interview that he gave the author of a biography of John Lennon and Yoko Ono. You know, Bob doesn't have a very high opinion of psychiatrists. So, it, you know, at a certain point, it was exit stage right. Charlie, we heard the words of Robert Durst in this episode talk about his family and particularly about his father and his relationship with the family business. How would you distill what Bob's feelings were about being passed over for Douglas? Well, that's a good question because I think Bob has given different accounts of himself and how he felt about it. On the one hand, his closest friends, his running buddies, Doug Oliver and Nick Chavin, would say that Bob was kind of embarrassed that he was passed over. And and that's why he stopped calling them back. He stopped hanging out in New York. It was just too embarrassing to him. On the other hand, starting in Galveston, Bob is saying, well, you know, I wasn't really good at it. And I didn't want to be in a nine to five job. That just wasn't me. So you've got two very different versions of it. Well, Brittany, Charlie, I look forward to continuing our conversation about all Durst things, and I want to thank you both for being with us today. Thanks for having us, Carrie. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1, and head over to CrimeStory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst is created and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. Brittany Bookbinder is my co-host. This episode was written and co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Passages from Robert Durst's written and spoken comments were read by actor David Kelsey. Post-production and editing was handled by Jody O'Keefe. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.